Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, so that's maybe if you go right to the middle of your Bible, you'll hit Proverbs or something like that and turn to the left and you'll find Psalms. Turn to Psalm 14. I'm going to read you the whole whole Psalm and then we'll meditate on it in light of our missions week. You do have a page on page 8 in your bulletin. If you want to take notes, you have a blank sheet there for notes together. It's a new month, and it's Christmas month, so we will be having two or three sermons on Christmas and the new year, but our first two Sundays, every December, are focused on world missions. We have our Christmas offering, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, where we're trying to raise $2,500, which goes to the field, to the missionaries there, and it is our week of prayer. So for eight days, we will be praying for international missions. So if you're a member of this church, make sure you have one of these. And um, we'll be praying this week together. So let's hear God's word as we think about global missions this Sunday. Hear God's word from Psalm 14. For the choir director of David, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on Yahweh, the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that deliverance, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken and you are speaking to us now. We are anticipating grace to be multiplied to us. We are anticipating peace to be multiplied to us through the knowledge of you. We want to know you. We have come here to know you so that we live with your joy, hope, and love. And we know you through your word. So, Father, as you speak, transform our hearts. God, do an amazing work in our lives that we might not even feel this morning. Change and reshape the direction of our lives. Change our trajectory, Lord. We know that there are some here who are going to be sent out into the mission field. We have many here who are going to be gospelizing those who will be gospelizing those who are sent out to the mission field. What we do here, Father, we know it has direct implications and ripple effects to the nations. And so, Father, speak a powerful, specific, and particular word to each one of us, what we need to hear to live our lives for the cause of Christ. Make us world Christians, we pray, global Christians, globally-minded Christians, for your great global glory. 
Help us, we pray. Help me to preach. Help us to think and hear and pray this week that you might work through us and among us for the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you follow politics, and we are entering another presidential season next year, and it's already ramping up, and you'll see all kinds of elections and people talking about politics, what you'll see many people seek to do is position themselves as the true humanitarians. Our position, our party, our platform, our view, if you vote for this person, you will be a true humanitarian working for the good of humanity. And if you vote for that other person, well, you hate humanity. Everyone wants to position themselves as true humanitarians. I read a book review and listened to an interview of an author recently who wrote about utopia. And, and he, he, he set up three major proposals for a world utopia. And he says it's within our grasp today to have utopia in our world today. As a Christian, I just read that with my eyes rolling all the time. There's sin in this world. Until Christ comes, there's not going to be a utopia and yet, this man is writing these things because he has a true desire to help humanity. Are you familiar with the Nobel Peace Prize? Have you heard of the Nobel Peace Prize? The Nobel Prize is awarded, they have several awards, there's six now, there used to be five, now there's six awards, and they're award, all of them are awarded, quote, for the greatest benefit to humankind. So in, in chemistry or in literature, these, these works that are for the greatest benefit to humankind. And the Nobel Peace Prize is for the person who, in the preceding year, quote, shall have done the most or the best work for, for the fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. So the person who works the most for world peace, that is the person who gets the Nobel Peace Prize. A true humanitarian working for peace in this world. Do you want peace in this world? We all want peace in this world. We should, right? Maybe some don't when they have financial or um, influential gain. But for the most part, most people want peace in this world. So let me ask you a question this morning. What is true humanitarianism? How do we live, quote, for the greatest benefit to humankind? How do we do that? And to answer how we do that, we maybe I have to ask another question. What is the greatest benefit to humankind? What is the greatest benefit for humanity? How can we know what is the greatest benefit for humanity? I mean, if we Google and search online, what is the greatest benefit for humanity? You think you're going to find one unified answer that's clear for everybody? No. You're going to find all kinds of opinions about what the greatest benefit for humanity is. And, it, you know, answering that question turns on another question. What's the greatest need for humanity? If you, what, what's, their, what's the greatest problem? If you want to share the gospel or have a meaningful conversation with your non-Christian friends, even this week, here's a good, here's a good conversation start you could, you could ask, even at the dinner table this holiday season. What do you think is the greatest problem in society today? What's the greatest problem in humanity today? What is humanity's greatest need? It's a good, good question to have a good, meaningful conversation that gets to the philosophy of life. Now, we want to know God's answers to these questions, don't we? We trust God speaks, and when God speaks, we ought to listen as Christians. And so let's listen to Psalm 14. Your Bible's already open there to Psalm 14. Let's listen to Psalm 14. Let's hear a word from God that I already prayed and I hope will shift, shape, and redirect our lives. 
So here's the main goal of this sermon. Live for humanity's true and only hope. Devote your lives. Live for humanity's true and only hope. Devote your life to humanity's true and only hope. And how are we going to do that? By seeing, fearing, and feeling. Seeing, fearing, and feeling. So see, fear, and feel. Now, I I need to... I know some of you, a lot of you have been listening to expository preaching regularly. That's what we do here. That's where the main, the words and goal of the passage controls the words and goal of the sermon. And so my wife was working through a, a potential outline last night, and I realized that my outline is a little skewed today. It's still biblical, but it's skewed, and here's why. Because when my wife was outlining it, she was looking for the main goal of Psalm 14. So if I was preaching Psalm 14 without missions, here's the main goal. Okay, this is a different main goal than the sermon. The main goal of Psalm 14 without Romans in the background, without missions, is hope in the deliverance from Zion because God sees your enemy's sins. He will, for three reasons, because God sees your enemy's sin, he will judge them and he will deliver you. That's why you have hope. God sees the sin of those who oppress you. God will judge those who oppress you and God will deliver you. So hope in Zion. That would be the main goal if I was just preaching Psalm 14. But I'm applying this to missions. So my main goal is live for true humanity's hope. Now, am I just taking an idea for missions and making the Bible do something the Bible isn't doing? Or am I still being controlled by the Bible? I'm still being controlled by the Bible, and here's why. You know who quotes Psalm 14? The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And he takes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he takes that text, or he takes this idea of humanity's sin, and he puts it in the context of missions in Romans 15. Because all have sinned, give me money, Paul says, for missions. So Paul uses this text for missions. So I'm not being unbiblical by using this for missions, okay? So the main goal of this sermon is live for humanity's true and only hope. And to do that, we need to see humanity's sin. We need to fear humanity's doom and feel feel humanity's hope, okay? So we need to see humanity's sin or humanity's problem. We need to fear humanity's doom and we need, we need to feel humanity's hope if we want to be true humanitarians this holiday season. So what is humanity's greatest problem? I already told you. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Here's humanity's problem. The fool says in his heart, there's no, there's no God. These people are corrupt. They do vile deeds. And when I say these people, you might be thinking, not me, those other people. But then it says, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. But what? Has he found one? What does verse 3 say? All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what's humanity's problem? Humanity's greatest problem is that they're sinners. That humanity is sinful. And so to see humanity's sin... I want to point out three things from these first four, first four verses. First, that human, humans rebel. Look at verse one again. Humans rebel. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Now, this is the heart of folly. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of? The fear of God or the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who promises to bless through Abraham. Fearing that God is the beginning of wisdom. What's the beginning of folly? To think and say there is no God. There is no God. 
Now, when I say folly here or foolishness, I am not speaking of intellectual folly, like they don't know that two plus two equals four, that somehow they are less educated. That's not what the Bible means by foolishness. The Bible means what it's talking about here is foolishness, not an intellectual inability, but a moral inability, an, Ill, an inability to take their knowledge and apply it to the reality of this world. That's when you're a fool, right? If you know that um, a money, if you, like for example, there's a money investment, and if you invest in this thing, if you invest a dollar, that in a year it's going to yield a million dollar return. If you knew that, and you didn't put a dollar in, you might have good knowledge, but are you wise? No, because you didn't apply it. If you have many dollars and you could have invested it, and, and you knew the thing, but you didn't do it, you're a fool for not applying the knowledge. So what is the greatest knowledge? The knowledge of God. And fools live like there's no God. So it's not saying that, that fools are intellectually convinced that there's no God. It's that they functionally live like there's no God. So this is your functional theology. Do you know that you're a theologian? Everyone's a theologian. Christians and non-Christians are theologians. You live out your belief about God. And every single time you sin, you live like there's no God. Or at least the God of the Bible isn't the true God. When I choose to lie, when I, choose, when I chose this week to be impatient with family and friends and to be self-righteously looking down on somebody else, I have believed in that moment that there is no God, that the God of the Bible doesn't exist. And so therefore, PJ has the right to self-righteously look down on another person. I have the right to be impatient with somebody because there is no God. It's just PJ. So humans rebel because we live like there's no God. According to nature, look at, look at verse 1 again. What, what about humans' nature? They are corrupt. It's not just that they, they do vile deeds. That's the next thing. They do bad things. They have bad actions. But they're bad in their nature. They're corrupt. Another word for that is spoiled. They're spoiled. They're rotten. They're stinky. They're expired. I asked the interns this morning, what would you rather do? Drink, drink spoiled chunky milk? Or eat moldy bread that's covered with mold. Which one would you rather do? Bread? Everyone's saying bread. Everyone says bread. Then old, spoiled, chunky milk. The nature of that milk at that point is corrupt. So what do you do with that kind of milk? Throw it away, right? But that's you. That's our nature. It's not just that, oh, just put some good milk on the bad milk and it'll be better. Or, or stir it up so that's not chunky anymore. And freeze it. And then melt it. And then, and then it'll be good. Will it be good? No. It's corrupt. By nature, it's already done. That's how we are as sinners. It's not that you just do bad things. That you could just stir things and refreeze it and make yourself better. It's like putting perfume on a dead body. You can't, you, you're not going to cover the smell too long with the perfume. As sinners... We're corrupt at the core of who we are. So we rebel. Not only do we rebel, that's in verse 1. So first one is we rebel, or they rebel, sinners rebel. Secondly, in verse 2, they all rebel. So it's not just one person or sinners rebel, but all people rebel. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, to see if there is one who seeks God. All have turned aside, and um, 
It says at the end, there's not one who does good, not even one. So they're not good. Verse 1 even says, there is no one who does good. So it turns to all people there. There's no one who does good. In verse 2, God comes down to see if there's one who's wise, if there's one who seeks God. And does he find anyone? Do you remember the story in Genesis 6, before God flooded the earth? What grieved God's heart? God looked down on the earth, and it says in Genesis 6, verse 5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. So God sees that the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. All the time. In Genesis 11, do you remember they're building this big tower to make a name for themselves? And it says, God, it says in verse four, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. That's Genesis eleven four. And in verse five, it says, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. God comes down to look over people. And what does he see? Not one wise, not one who seeks God. Now, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what does it mean to fear God? I've told you this a few weeks ago. The fear of God is a reverence for who God is that frees your will to do all God says. That's the beginning of wisdom. When you fear God or you revere God for who he is, that you're willing to do all that he says. You know why we disobey? It's not because we have no desire to, to, to obey God. It's because our desires for other things are greater. Or to put it another way, it's not that we have no reverence for God. It's that our reverence for our family member who might get mad at us if we share the gospel with them is a greater reverence than our reverence for God. And so if we're not revering God for who he is, we won't do all that he says because we revere our non-Christian neighbor more than we revere God or we revere our, our family member more than we revere God. But when you revere God more, when you revere God for who he is as Lord, then you'll be willing to do what? All that God says. And that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But here when God looks, there's no one who, who's wise because no one is seeking God. No one is fearing God ultimately. And it says here that no one seeks God. It's not only that they, can't, that they, that they um, don't know who God is. They don't even want to know who God is. They're not even looking for God. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says that the Lord's eyes roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, I will look favor favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that, when the, um, that the hour is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is looking for those who seek him those who worship him in spirit and truth, those who tremble at his word and those who are humble before him and who fear him, those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. And what does he find? He finds none. Instead, look at verse three. What does he find? All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. When he says all have turned away, what's another word for turning away from something? When you turn away from sin, you what? Repent, right? So if sin is this way, and here's God, we want to turn away from sin and turn to God. That's repentance toward God. There's another way of repenting though, right? If I turn away from God and turn towards sin, I'm repenting from God, and I'm repenting towards sin. 
In other words, everyone repents in this room. You repented all week. You've been repenting every day. You've been turning away from someone and turning to something. You haven't stopped repenting. Even right now, as you sit here, your back is turned to someone and your, 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 your front is facing and your life is moving towards someone else. Have you turned your back on sin? When God looks at the world, all have turned away from God and they all have turned towards sin. They're not seeking God. They're seeking sin. They're running away from God as fast as they can. And that's why all alike have become corrupt and spoiled. There is no one who does good, it says in verse 3, not even one. So we see that humans rebel. We see that, secondly, that all humans rebel. And thirdly here, we see that all misunderstand, that they just don't get it. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Will evildoers never understand? That's the problem. They don't understand. What don't they understand? Well, they believe, they, they live like there's no what? God. If you don't understand God, then you don't understand yourself. If you don't understand yourself, you don't understand this world, and you don't understand relationships with other humans. When you get your connection with God messed up and disordered, that brings disorder to your relationships with the people. Within yourself, you're, you start to have brokenness even within yourself. Anxiety or fear or, you know, all kinds of brokenness within ourselves. And then you have brokenness in terms of your relationship with this world when you have a broken relationship with God. And so when it says here that will they ever understand, when you don't get God, you don't get life. You don't get relationships. So will they ever understand? Well, they don't. And why don't they understand? Look at verse four. Here's why. Now this is strange. What's the proof that someone doesn't understand God? What's the proof that they don't get this world? Look at verse four. They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. There's two ways that you could tell that someone doesn't get it. First of all, they consume what? They consume who? People, my people. And secondly, they don't call on the Lord. So what does it mean to misunderstand? They consume my people. Who's the my, whose people is this? Look at verse uh, chapter 14 or Psalm 14. Whose people? Who's the my? Who's speaking here? The Lord is a good guess, but go up before verse one. Who wrote this Psalm? David, will evildoers ever understand, never understand? They consume my people. Whose people? David's people. And David is the king of Israel. He's an Israelite, the holy nation, the kingdom of priests, the people of God. So here's one clue that someone doesn't get God. They consume God's people. You think, well, if they don't get God, that means they rebel against God. No, when you rebel against God, you dishonor God's people. You don't love God's people. You don't serve God's people. You don't bless God's people. You're not devoted to God's people when you're, when you're not right with God. So Genesis 12, 3 says to Abraham, God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through. So when you bless Abraham's people, the covenant people of God, when you bless them, God blesses you. And when you curse them, God treats you with contempt. So how do you know when someone is off with God? How do they treat God's people? They consume God's people. When you reject God, you reject God's people. When you receive God, you receive his people. Many misunderstand God because they live as if they can be okay with God while not being okay with God's people. 
And that's not biblically true. It's all or nothing. Do you want God? You get his people too. If you don't want God, if you just want God and not his people, then you don't want the God of the Bible. Because God will not divorce himself from his bride. You take God as a package deal with his, with his bride, or you don't take God at all. So here they consume David's people. And then going to verse 4 again, they don't call on Yahweh. They don't call on the Lord. Joel 2.13 says, Tear your hearts. Here's a call to repentance. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to Yahweh your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Will God forgive those who turn to him? Will God forgive those who call on him? I just read Joel 2, that God is faithful and forgiving. Joel 2.13, that was 2.13. Let me read verse 32, the same chapter of Joel. Joel 2.32, and you've heard this from Romans. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, will be saved. saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. As the Lord Yahweh has promised, among the survivors, Yahweh calls. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because God's calling them, it says in that verse. But notice, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But these people, all humans, they don't seek God. When they sin, they don't run to God. They hide from God. They don't run to God's people. They hide from God's people because they don't get it. They don't know God. And so they don't run to his people. They don't run to God. Like Adam who did not call on Yahweh. It says here in verse 4, they do not call on Yahweh. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? They ate the fruit, right? In the garden. And then they hear the footsteps of God walking in the garden of Eden. And what do they do? Adam stands up and says, Lord, save me. Yahweh, save me. God of the covenant, who's gracious and compassionate, save me, I'm over here, help. Help, I ate the fruit. That's what, that's what Adam did, right? No. He didn't call on the Lord. He hid from the Lord because he doesn't understand God. He didn't know God in his sin. And that's what you do. That's what we do when we hide from God and we hide from God's people. It's because we reject God. We live like there is no God. Like we don't understand him. As if we can cut off pieces of our lives from God and his people. Can't do it. Not if you're going to truly know God. So God comes down, it says here in verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race. Do you remember when Abraham was trying to talk God out of destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18? God said in Genesis 18, verse 21, I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I'll find out. So he goes up to Abraham and he says, and he tells Abraham he's going to destroy the city where his nephew is. And then Abraham says, um, Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? And God says, I'll spare them. And then Abraham says, well, what about 45? And God says, I'll spare them. What about 40? I'll spare them. And he says, don't get mad. What about 30? For the sake of 30, I won't destroy the city. Lord, please, just one more time. One more question, last question. What about 20? All right, for the sake of 20, I won't destroy the city. All right, Lord, last, 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 last question. Please don't get mad at me. Just the last, last time. 
What about 10 people? And the Lord says, for the sake of 10 people, I won't destroy the city. And Abraham stops there. What did God do? Did he destroy the city or not? He destroyed the city because there weren't 10 righteous people in the city. And so we see here that God sees sin and God sees sinners and we can't hide from him. He knows that you are a sinner before God. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, thank you for coming this morning. We're grateful for you being here. We understand you don't have to be here at this church, but you're here this morning. And so thank you for coming. But we want you to understand this as you've come. You are a sinner before a holy God. And this is your greatest problem. This is society's greatest problem, that we are sinners. Society is made up of sinners. And this is humanity's greatest problem. Christian, if you're a member here at this church or Christian in general, you are a sinner too. Even as a Christian, you must realize that apart from God's grace and apart from Christ and the Spirit's constant activity, you would reject God right now. You'd give up on your Christianity right now if God stopped acting on your behalf. You are a sinner too. And you still have indwelling sin in your life. And that is still your biggest problem. Church, what does this mean for our church family? If we will be of help to anyone, if we will be true humanitarians as Bethany Baptist Church, we must realize that people, the people we want to serve are sinners. And we need to help them with their greatest need. Children, there are some children here who are sick. Children, realize that you too are a sinner before God. Here's good news. God tells us the truth so that we can face reality. God doesn't want you to live in delusion. So live for humanity's true and only hope. How? See humanity's sin, but secondly, fear humanity's doom. Look at verse five. Look at verse five with me. Fear humanity's doom. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. Why is humanity doomed? They're going to be filled with what? Look at verse five. What are they going to be filled with? Say it. Dread, and why? Why will they be filled with dread? Why will they be scared? For God is with those who are righteous. And the implication there is God is not with those who are going to be afraid and doomed, right? God is with his people. He's not with those who are not his people. So they will be filled with dread. They'll be filled with fear. David doesn't tell us why, but if we read other Psalms, we get a picture. Listen to Psalm 73, verses 11 to 13. And many Christians can relate to this Psalm. One of my favorite Psalms. The wicked say, how can we know God? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase in wealth. And here's the psalmist being jealous of the wicked. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? I mean, here I am serving you, God, and my life is falling apart. I look here at this non-Christian, and they're wicked, and they live like you're not even here, and they're prospering. Have you ever feel that way? Read Psalm 73. It's good for your soul. I'm going to spoil it for you here, though, but still read it. He's like, did I wash my hands for nothing? And then you get to verse 18, and here's what he says. Indeed, after I thought at your sanctuary and, and looked at your presence, indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Will the, non, will the, will the unbelievers, will those who reject God, will they be filled with dread in the end? Yes or no? Yes. yes. They will be filled with dread in the end. Listen to Revelation 6, 12 through 17. I think this is describing the second coming of Christ. I'm not sure, but I think it is. But listen to this. Then I saw Jesus open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. 
The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high, high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And here's, here's the dread part. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person, here's what they did when this happened. They hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Are they filled with dread? They're praying to rocks. They're praying to mountains to crush them because they don't want to face the wrath of God and the lamb. Verse five again, I read here, they will be filled with dread. So you need to fear humanity's doom. Your neighbors, your family members who are not in Christ, they will be filled with dread at the coming judgment of God. It's not if, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. They will be filled with dread. Why? According to verse five, for God is with those who are righteous, meaning he's abandoning those who are not righteous. That's what Psalm 1 says, right? The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Because God is with his people, but he's not with those apart from him, those, those who are apart from him. And therefore, they will be judged. Non-Christian, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning. I want to plead with you. Don't believe the poets of our culture, like Bob Marley, who says, don't worry about a thing. Because everything is going to what? It's going to be all right. I almost want to sing it. It sounds so good. <laughs> don't worry about a thing, because everything, every little thing going to be all right. That's not true. Not according to Psalm 14.5. They will be filled with dread. Everything is not going to be all right. You need to do more than worry. You need to fear and tremble before God's judgment. And don't only reject your poets of this day, reject your own inner feelings, your own sentiments. I have one non-Christian friend who wrote to himself or herself. I say both, so, so you won't guess who it is. But I have one non-Christian friend who wrote to himself or herself. Dear future self, he posted this on social media. She posted this on social media. Dear future self, Everything that has happened, listen to this sentiment of positive thinking. Everything that has happened has led you to this moment. Don't change a thing. Everything, everything has worked out exactly as it should be. All the puzzle pieces fit. All the paths make sense. All the people were meant to be. All the successes and failures and heartwarming and heartbreaking moments were all worth it. No regrets. You were and are and have been and always will be yourself. And that's what matters above all. That you were and are and will be yourself. And that's what matters above all. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. Non-Christian friend, don't be deceived. This is not true. The puzzle pieces don't fit. Everything won't be all right if you reject God. 
Don't give in to blind optimism. It feels good. I listened to the song last night. It feels good. And I think for a Christian, we could actually sing it, right? Um, with Christ in the center. But don't trust your feelings. They can deceive you. There is a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death or destruction. Children, judgment is coming. The penalty of sin, children, kids, is eternal death. Even you need to turn to God. Church family, fear the judgment of your loved ones. Fear the judgment for the nations. Can you ask the, answer this question in your own heart, church family, as a church and as individuals? Do we feel as a church, do we really feel the weight of the judgment coming on our loved ones? Does that really burden you that the nations are perishing without Christ and that they are going to a Christless eternity? Does that weigh on us in the problems and struggles we're facing today? If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, you know what, this is exactly why I would never become a Christian because Christians are so arrogant. They're so audacious. They claim that if you don't follow their way, if you don't follow their Bible, and if you don't worship their Savior, Jesus Christ then they're going to hell? I mean, who are Christians to judge? Why can't they be loving like their God? I mean, don't Christians say God is love? Why can't Christians be love? If you're not a Christian, you might feel that way. But let me tell you why it's not arrogant for us to say that Jesus is the only way. It's not arrogant because it's true. And it's not our truth. It's not like we made it up ourselves. It would be arrogant if I said, you know, I just searched my feelings and Jesus is the only way. And Christians just searched their feelings. And so we all came up with a consensus that Jesus is the only way. Well, that would be arrogant because the authority is in us. And to be honest, we're sinners too. We deserve to be damned to hell just like every other sinner in this world. We are lost. We are not God. We don't know everything. We can be wrong. But here's why it's not arrogant. Because we're actually humbly believing what God has said to us. And it's actually arrogant to reject what God has said to us. So arrogance is not believing God. Arrogance is rejecting what God says. So, and so the other reason why it's not unloving for us to tell you that you're going to hell apart from Jesus, when I say it's true, let's use this analogy. If, if, um, if you were about to drink a drink and we knew it was poisonous and you didn't know it was poisonous, a drink that was on recall and it was killing people and you somehow didn't get the memo, that this drink is killing people, and you're about to drink it, and we said, don't drink that drink or you're going to die. Is that unloving or loving? loving. What, if you, what if they said, you're not loving. Don't judge me. Judge yourself. I can drink what I want to drink. You drink what you want to drink. That's your truth. I'll drink what I want to drink. Just be loving. And they drink it and die. So is it better to not say anything at all? No, you should warn them, right? If you're warning them of a true and real danger... That's love. That's not, that's not arrogance. That's serving them, not oppressing them. So if you're saying, I could never be a Christian because they think that they have the only way and they're so arrogant, that would be true if the Bible is false. That would be true if Jesus isn't truly the Savior and only Savior of the world. But if he is the only Savior of the world, then it's not true that Christians are arrogant. We're just trying to serve you the truth. We're poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. So live for true humanity's hope. Let's go to the last one. So I said, see humanity's sin. 
Secondly, fear humanity's doom. And lastly, feel humanity's hope. Verses 6 and 7. Feel humanity's hope. Last two verses of the psalm. Look at verse 6. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Ah, where is refuge? Where is safety from oppression? Where is safety from those who would curse God? Where is safety? In the Lord. The Lord is his refuge. And the Lord there is the name Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. When you see the capital O-R-D, that's Yahweh. When you see lowercase O-R-D, that's just Lord, Master. Still for God, but when you see capital O-R-D, that's Yahweh, his personal name. Like Abba, my, parent, my kids call me Abba or Dad. That's not my personal name. That's my role in their lives. But if you call me PJ, that's my name. In a similar way, when you say God, that's not his name. When you say Lord, that's not his name. But his name is Yahweh, at least revealed in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, his name is Jesus. But the point is, God says here, Yahweh is his refuge, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who saves his people through his promised blessing in Abraham. So God is the refuge from judgment. God is our refuge from God. Not only from the oppressed, but God is our refuge from God. Now, how is God the refuge for the oppressed? I mean, aren't his people sinners too? Yes or no? Are God's people sinners too? Yes or no? Yes. Are God's people good? According to Psalm 14, verse 1 through 3, are they good? Do they do good? Are they corrupt? Do they do vile deeds? Yes. Do they live foolishly as if there's no God? Yes. And yet God is their refuge? I mean, even in verse 5, it calls them, in verse 6, I mean, or in verse 5, it says God is with those who are righteous. Righteous? I thought Paul said there's none righteous, no, not one. Paul said that. When Paul means righteous, he means completely, perfectly righteous. Here in Psalm 14, it does not mean perfectly, completely righteous. Don't read Romans 3 into Psalm 14. Read Psalm 14 to Romans 3, but don't read it backwards if that makes sense. When, when the psalmist is using the word righteous here, he's not meaning those who are perfectly righteous. He means those who do right things in covenant relationship with God. Okay? So not those who are sinless, but those who are in a covenant relationship with God of blessing through God's promise, and so they do right things. But they're not perfectly righteous. So here God says that he's the refuge for his people. And then look at verse 7. I love verse 7. My favorite verse in the whole psalm, verse 7. This is David now, right? David wrote this. David lived 1,000 BC. Here's what David says. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. This is 1,000 BC. What is David's heart prayer? What is he praying for Israel? That what would come? Their what? Their deliverance, their savior, their salvation, their deliverance. God, bring your deliverance from Zion. David saw that deliverance would come. And where would it come from? From where? From Zion. Now, where is Zion? Zion is the Jebusite fortress in Jerusalem that was conquered by David. Zion was called, it's also called Jerusalem. So it's Jerusalem, Zion. Zion was used, here's a Bible dictionary definition. Zion was used by biblical writers to identify other areas of Jerusalem and was used as a designation of the entire city. Zion was also used to describe, spiritually speaking, the eternal city of God. So Zion is the city of God. And what's David's prayer here? Oh, that deliverance would come from where? From Zion. 
Do you know what happened on Zion? In Jerusalem? Let me tell you a few things that happened in Zion. Before David, maybe a thousand years before David, Abraham took his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, also known as Jerusalem, also known as Zion, and he was about to kill his son Isaac. And then God said, don't! And then God provided a ram in the thicket that was sacrificed. And so God, or Abraham called that Jehovah Jireh, right? My provider. God would provide a ram. And he did provide a ram right there in, on Mount Moriah, in Jerusalem, in Zion. That's a thousand years before David. David comes along, he conquers the city of Zion, and he builds the king's palace. So the king, the anointed Messiah of God, lives in his palace where? In Zion, the city of God, also known as the city of David. But then David dies, and his son Solomon takes over. So there's not only a palace, what does Solomon build in Zion? The temple. And so now, before they even finish building the temple, God's presence moves into the temple, and he chases out the priests, and now God's Shekinah glory lives where? In Zion, in the temple, in Zion. And David's prayer, already going past his life, looking to the future, next generation of Solomon, oh, that deliverance would come from Zion. And what's happening in Zion at the temple? What are they doing at the temple every day? Making sacrifices. Blood is all over the place. They have a clean system of where they put the blood, but there's blood and there's animals dying all the time at the Temple Mount because sacrifices are being made for sinners. And then a thousand years after David, what happens? A thousand years after David, in that same temple, Jesus comes with a whip and he starts whipping cattle and overturning money tables and kicking people out of this temple and saying, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all ethnic people groups, for all nations. And he says, this temple in Jerusalem, here in Zion, is supposed to be a house of prayer for all ethnic people groups. And so God comes down from heaven and looks on the earth to see if there's one who is wise, one who seeks God. Abraham says, Lord, if there's, if there's 50, if there's 45, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, is there even one? And here's Jesus walking into the temple, cleansing the temple, because it says zeal or passion for Yahweh will consume him. He's consumed with the glory of God. Is there one who seeks God? Is there one who will only do good? Is there one who does not sin, who does not come, become corrupt? There's Jesus on the mountain cleansing the temple. And yet, on that same mountain, a week later, that's on Monday and Tuesday when he cleanses the temple, on that Friday, Jesus is hanging on a tree. Where? On Zion, in Zion. Right outside the temple gate, right outside the city gate, we have Jesus hanging on a cross crushed by God on a cross for sinners. There in Zion. There in Zion. He's tried. He's crucified. And on the third day, on a Sunday, there in Zion, Jesus rises from the dead. And so here's David a thousand years before praying, oh, that deliverance would come from Zion. Did deliverance come from Zion? Yes, deliverance came from Zion. Was David's prayer answered? Yes, David's prayer was answered. 
1,986 years ago, 33 AD. You guys see it here? Maybe you notice it here? Here in our church seal, our church was established 33 AD, not only 1949. Why 33 AD? Because in Zion, 1,986 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And he secured salvation for all of his people. And all the grace that would flow to us, including the establishment of this church. 1,986 years ago, in Zion, 7,567 miles from Los Angeles. I googled it. 7,567 miles. The other side of the world, in Zion, deliverance came. Salvation came. And so the author of Hebrews says, Instead, Christian, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. God saves people from Zion. Deliverance came from Zion. If you're not a Christian, here is the good news of Christianity. If you don't, know, if you don't, think of, if you don't hear anything else, if you're not a Christian, hear this. This is the good news, that God made you and God loves you and God longs to have a relationship with you. But we have rebelled. We have become corrupt. We have lived as if there is no God. We have done vile deeds. We don't do good. We reject God. We have turned away from God and turned towards sin. And therefore, God will judge us. We are doomed in our sins. But here's the good news. Deliverance came from Zion. God sent Jesus. He did find one who was righteous. He did find one who seeks God. He did find one who does good. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God. And he lived the life that you should have lived. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And he rose from the dead so that if you repent from your sins, if you stop turning away from God and instead turn away from sins and turn to God, if you turn away from your own righteousness and turn to God, if you turn away from your own religion and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be delivered. You will be forgiven. And you'll be restored into a relationship with God. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to live in you and he'll transform you from now on into eternity. That's the good news. That's God's offer for you today if you're not a Christian. Become a Christian today by repenting from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ who died for sinners and rose from the dead. Let's finish the verse. Verse seven. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people... Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. There's a, there's, a ver, there's a command. Joy and gladness. When should you rejoice, new covenant Israel? Those are in the new Israelite covenant. When should you rejoice? When should you be glad? According to verse 7. When? When the Lord what? Restores his people. Question. Here's a theological question for you. Has the Lord restored the fortunes of his people? Or will he do it in the future? Has he done it? So it's all done? Complete? Will he do it in the future? Yes. yes. And you're right, it's both. He's already finished it. When he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. There's no more accomplishment for sin that needs to be done. Christ accomplished all of it. So should we rejoice now? Should we be glad now? Yes, amen. That's why we say happy Lord's Day even when we're not happy. Because we need to be happy. Even in our broken lives. Even in our pain. Even through our tears. Even with our weeping. It is a happy Lord's Day because salvation has been accomplished. Deliverance has already come. And yet, 
We look forward. Christ is coming again. And we know that our full happiness has not yet come. We pray with the saints all around the world, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We will be glad. We will rejoice. It says in Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Grief will be no more. Crying will be more, no more. Pain will be no more. Death will be no more. We will see God's face. Or as the song says, one of my favorite songs that we haven't sung at BBC yet. Maybe we should someday. We need a few more instruments to sing it though. We will dance on the streets that are golden. The glorious bride and the great son of man from every tongue and tribe and nation will join in the song of the Lamb. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a dance. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a feast greater than any feast you've ever experienced on this old earth in the new earth to come. We will dance on the streets that are golden. It's going to be awesome. And so we rejoice now for what Christ has done. We look forward to Christ's coming. What does this mean for missions? Let me apply this to missions before we close. Turn to Isaiah 49. Turn to Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. If we just read Psalm 14, we'll be like, great, great for Israel, great for Old Covenant Israel, great for New Covenant Israel, not great for the nations. They're doomed. But is this good news for the nations? That God will save Israel and deliver Israel? Is that good for the nations? Yes, why? Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be a servant. And speak of the Messiah, representative of Israel, representative of Israel. The Lord who formed me from um, the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. So here's the servant saying, God will use me to bring back Israel. Should we rejoice if we're new covenant Israel? Yes or no? Yes. Praise God. But what about the nations? What about those who are not Israel? Actually, and this is speaking still in the old covenant context. So should we rejoice that ethnic Israel will be delivered by Jesus? Should we rejoice? Well, I'm not ethnically Israel. Like, you know, in terms of my ancestry. I don't have ancestry that goes back to Israel. So I'm on the out. So verse five is like, yeah, great for ethnic Israel who's gonna be delivered, but not for me. But verse six is for me and for you and for missions and for the nations. Look at verse six. He says, it's not enough servant for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob, ethnic, is- ethnic Israel, and restoring the protected ones of Israel. No, servant. I will also make you a light for who? For the nations. To be my salvation just in Zion? Where? To the ends of the earth. To 7,567 miles ends of the earth. To Bellflower. To Los Angeles. God would make the servant of the Lord not just the savior of ethnic Israel, but a light to the nations. His salvation to the ends of the earth so that all the way in Los Angeles County we would hear about this Jewish Messiah and repent and be united to him. And now he calls us here in Los Angeles to be a light to our neighbors and to the nations. It's not enough for you to be redeemed, New Covenant Israel, New Covenant Church. It's not enough for you to be redeemed. God has made you a light to the nations. His redemption must go to the ends of the earth. This is why Christians who are in Christ, who are truly Christians, This is why we've been brought into the new Israelite covenant because Christ became a light to the nations. 
And if you've, if you've received this light, you must also extend this light. You are not allowed to be greedy. You are not allowed to be selfish. You're not allowed to be stingy. If you receive the light of God, you must devote your life to spreading this light to your neighbors and to the nations. You don't have a choice if you're following Jesus. Jesus is for the nations. So if you're for Jesus, then you're for the nations. You have to be a humanitarian if you're a Christian. And you have to care for humanity's greatest need, which is salvation from their sins and their doom and their judgment. We are part of God's great plan. We are part of God's passion for his glory among all people groups. It reaches all the way out here to Southeast LA County. And so live for humanity's true and only hope. How? By seeing humanity's sin, by fearing humanity's doom, and by feeling humanity's hope in Christ from Zion. So see humanity's sin, fear humanity's judgment, feel humanity's hope. Devote your life to true humanitarianism, world missions. In other words, here's my call to you. Be a world Christian. Get your eyes bigger than your own life and your own family and your own neighborhood and your own job and your own church and your own denomination and your own country. Get bigger eyes. Get a bigger heart. Be a world Christian for the, the last vapor of life you have left. Devote your life to world missions, to global missions. I'm calling you this week here it is. I'm calling you to a week of devoted and unhurried prayer for the nations. Spend five minutes, 10 minutes. Just set a timer and turn off your phone. Put on airplane mode. No notifications. No one bugging you. For five minutes every day, devote your heart and time and prayer for the nations. And ask God to save them, to send workers to them, to bless them, to send us, to raise up money so that we and other churches would give for missions. Every day this week, be a world Christian by devoting your life to prayer for the nations. Pray that we would pray. Pray that we would give. Pray that we would go. Pray that we would send. Next week when I preach on missions, I'm going to ask members of this church to stand up publicly and maybe even come to the front for prayer where we're going to pray for those who want to go as missionaries to the nations. We're going to call for those who want to be long-term missionaries. Whether they will or not, we just, if they have the desire, we're going to call for them to come up and we're going to pray for them as a church. And then maybe we'll even call for those who want to commit to going to a short-term missions trip in the next five years to come to the front that we might pray for them. And we're going to put them on our members directory so that this year we'll be praying for them that God would guide them and guide us to send people to the nations. Whether you go or whether you stay here, you must be a sender. My wife and I pray every year. We started praying this yesterday, maybe even two days ago. God, tell me and Francis if you want us to leave Bethany Baptist Church and go to the nations. Every Christian here has to put this on the table. Your life is a blank check. It's already signed, right? Are you in with Christ? Are you devoted to Christ? Our lives are a blank check. We just put it before God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's not fair for me to ask you to go and not pray about us going. We all have to check our own hearts. Should we stay in saturated LA with the gospel spreading here? Or should we go to an unreached place where God wants us to devote our lives closer to the front line? Brothers and sisters, if you devote your life to world missions, if you don't devote your life to world missions, you'll live for something small. You'll be less useful to humanity. You'll be stuck in your sins because you live for small things. 
and you'll be, dis- you'll be dissatisfied because you were made for something bigger than Los Angeles and America and North America. You were made for God's global glory. But if you devote your life to world missions, if you give and pray and send and go, if our church does this, you will be useful to humanity. You won't get a Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. They don't hand out any Nobel Peace Prizes to missionaries who are dying for Christ. But that's the, the greatest peacemakers. You will be useful to humanity. You'll accomplish the great good you were made for. And you will live for the one big thing you were made for, God's global glory in the hope of all humanity and the unreached, among the unreached nations. So I call you one last time, brothers and sisters, devote your life to true humanitarianism. Devote your life to world missions. Be a global Christian. Let's pray now and let's pray this week for world missions. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment to pray on your own and then I'll close. Father in heaven, make us global Christians. Break our hearts for the nations. Break our hearts for our neighbors. Help us to see their greatest need and help us to gospelize and bring them Jesus. Help us influence people towards Christ to disciple well, to disciple each other and to disciple our neighbors and the nations, we pray. Help us to pray this week, to be devoted to prayer and realign our priorities and our Christmas according to your heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.